Hello, listeners. Eric here, jumping in before the intro. There's just over uh, one month before the election, which means my schedule is getting busier and busier, as you can imagine. In light of that, uh, we're going to spend the next number of weeks to rebroadcast a series Scott and I think is the most important we have done. We talked through the book by David Coises' Political Visions and Illusions, and we actually end with an interview with Dr. Coises. I hope you find it helpful. I know I did. So here it is. Thanks. Hello, and welcome to another episode of City on a Hill, a podcast about what it means to be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of the United States. We want to encourage Christians to find their tribe in the church and their hope in the kingdom of God, rather than to seek both in the kingdom of man. So with that, let's get to it today. Well, hello. My name is Eric Eastep. I'm Scott Reevely. And this is the City on a Hill podcast. Welcome back. Um, we have been reporting on a book for several weeks now, and today we're going to be doing something special, and we're very excited about that. So let me hand it off to Scott, and he can do some introductions. Well, it is, uh, it is a treat for us. We feel a little bit like we're uh, fans and we're you know talking to some uh, a celebrity or something, but we're... <laughs> Happy to have Dr. David Coises with us on uh, this episode of City on a Hill. Uh, he has taught for 30 years at Redeemer University College in Ontario and is currently uh, a global scholar with uh, Global Scholars in Canada. And that's where he does most of his work. He's also retired and uh, lives in Hamilton, Ontario. He, of course, has written the book that we have been uh, talking about recently called Political Visions and Illusions, a survey and critique, Christian critique of contemporary ideologies. And so we're really uh, excited to have you here, David. Thank you. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Well, this, uh, this should be fun. And um, just a, a couple of things to, to get us started, if you would. I, I found you uh, online, among other places, at Byzantine Right Calvinist. That's what, correct. That's right. What is that? <laughs> it's a uh, it's a, a tongue-in-cheek reference to my uh, paternal background. My father was born in the Greek Orthodox community in the island of Cyprus in the eastern Mediterranean. So uh, uh, I that, I call myself a Byzantine Rite Calvinist because there there really isn't such a thing. Although there was one <laughs> patriarch, there was one ecumenical patriarch in the 17th century who who might have have uh, qualified. For that, so that that label, but I'm I'm pretty much by myself at the moment. <laughs> okay, well there you go. He's the, he's the only Byzantine right Calvinist that you could find on the entire internet. So that's great. And then I I had to also just wonder, you've got another blog called the Genevan Salter blog. Is that your guitar? Are, is those your recordings? Oh yes, yeah, absolutely yes. That's right. What I've I've I, I just recently set to verse all 150 psalms to so that they could be sung to the the genevan tunes from uh, from the 16th century and i'm now looking for a publisher for the collection wow brilliant very exciting so yeah we'll put a link to that in the show notes too so people can okay. uh, not only read you but uh but listen to you as well so that's really cool um so the um I just have to say what really attracted us to your book was the contrast that 
you drew between the true gospel and the distorted gospels of the ideologies. And I would kind of love to hear how you came to see these uh, ideologies as false gospels. What yeah. led you to, to think of it in that way? Yeah, it, it, it really started in a very practical way because back in 1987, when I first started teaching, I had to, uh, I was um, assigned to teach a course in, in modern political ideologies. And it was just a small course at the time. It would get larger um, in, uh, in, in later years because it ended up being the flagship course for, uh, for political science and uh, um, a quite, quite popular course. And uh, I had to, to find a textbook that I that I I thought would would handle the subject in a way that was appropriate to a Christian university. Mm -hmm. uh, back then, uh, there was no internet, so you had to look through these hardbound orange, orange volumes called books in print, which Scott might remember, but um, but Eric might might not. Is my, is my guess. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> and so I ended up getting uh, one of these standard um, textbooks in political ideologies, but, uh, but I basically did what I felt was best in the course. And um, uh, it, for some time, I began to think that, that um, liberalism, um, socialism, uh, conservatism, uh, you, know, I, you could add anarchism as well. I invented a word democratism. I, I may not have actually invented it, but it's what I put in the second edition of Political Visions and Illusions, uh, that, that they, they were right about something and it was easy to see what they were right about. So liberalism uh, revolves around around individual freedom, which is a very good thing. And and you know the the American founders were were big into individual freedom, and as were were Canada's founders back in the 1860s. Uh, but the uh, but it's also possible to make too much of individual liberty, and it can be um, um, taken in such a way that it it begins to uh, damage. Uh, our embeddedness in basic communities. And so mm -hmm. that, that's what, it, what really struck me is that, that if we try to reduce everything to a kind of voluntary association, then we can't really take into account uh, such a commandment that we find in the, in the Decalogue to, to honor your father and mother, that your lives may be long in the land that the Lord your God uh, will give you. It's, it's, uh, our, we don't choose our fathers and mothers. We don't choose our birth family, but yet we're mm. part of them, and we have obligations to our family. And in that respect, I think liberalism is a kind of a, uh, is a kind of idolatry because it, it makes individual freedom the be all and the end all of everything. Mm. You kind of saw that then with each of these ideologies that they were good up to exactly. a point and then they went too far. Yeah. Well, well, they're, 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 they're good. They're, 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 their insight is on the very point in which they go wrong. Mm. So, you know, socialism, uh, the community, you know, loyalty to the larger community, uh, 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 to, to have a, uh, uh, an economy that in which everybody can participate in some fashion and that people are not just serfs or, or slaves or wage, um, you know, wage slaves, uh, as, as I think Karl Marx put it, uh, you want to have a society in which everybody is, is participating, but uh, but that's the point at which it goes wrong as well, because it, it may end up empowering the community over the individual, and, and individual concerns take a back seat. Well, good. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I, I can't help but ask you this, because it, we're recording on January 6th here, yeah. uh, the first anniversary of the, 
what was just really a difficult day here in the States uh, when the Capitol got stormed. And I'm, I'm just wondering how the ideologies that you have in your book you know, kind of played into that, the things that happened on that day. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, good question. And this is something that, that I think we have all had to try to grapple with over the last year. Now, now I, I was born in the United States near, near Chicago. I haven't lived in the United States for 35 years. So I'm a, I'm a Canadian citizen. Um, you know, I'm, I'm married. Uh, I, our daughter was born here. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm quite distressed by the sorts of things that I see going on south of the border. I think a lot of it had to do with the, uh, I think the internet is part of that. Uh, you know, at, at one time, well, when I was growing up, all of our news came from, I grew up in the Chicago area. So, you know, we, we, we subscribed to the Chicago Daily News, which, which no longer exists anymore. It's been gone for more than 40 years. We would read the Chicago Tribune on, on weekdays. I grew up during the time of the Vietnam War and racial unrest in the major cities. And we would rely on CBS, ABC, um, NBC, you know, the major uh, networks that were, were carefully putting news reports together. And sometimes they got things wrong, but um, if they did, they, they were called to account for, for that. Nowadays, because the dissemination of in information has been so democratized, uh, it, the onus is on the user to decide what's true and what's false. Mm. And so in the same way that, that information can be so easily disseminated, misinformation can just as easily be disseminated as well. And I think that has, has what has poisoned the political culture in the United States over the last um, maybe 20 years. Mm. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about that. In fact, that's one of the things we found that we needed to talk about on this podcast when we're talking oh, about yeah. politics is how people consume their news and get their information. Absolutely. Because, yeah, uncritically, th that can be a real problem. And, yeah. Um, but yeah, there was, uh, it was just, it's been hard to kind of process even a year later now to think back and what really went on. And uh, mm -hmm. I do appreciate the tools in your book to, to see the, the, the nationalism at play and to see some of the liberalism at play in yeah. what went on at the Capitol. But yeah, uh, yeah that's, the tools have been really helpful. So thank right. you. Oh, you're very welcome. And it's sad to say, you know, when I look at what's happening in the States, I think the, the two major political parties are diseased parodies of their former selves. Mm. What do you uh, mean by that? Uh, you know, they, they, the, the extremist elements in both parties, it seems to me, have, have, have largely risen to the top. Um, in the old days, prior to 1968, you, you would have officials in the two major parties vetting candidates especially for the presidency, but, but for other offices as well. And uh, I think the, the excessive democratization of the candidate selection process with the party primaries and, and so forth um, has, um, has, has led to Napoleonic politics. You get, you get a one leader who claims to be representing the people and if Congress stands in the way or, or other officials, too bad for them because, because the people are, are in back of them. And that's not just a phenomenon of the Republican Party. I think it's it's probably taken um, it's it's probably more uh, visible in the Republican Party. But I think those tendencies exist in the Democratic Party as well. Mm -hmm. Interesting. That's and unfortunately, here in Canada, we're following you guys down that path of excessively democratizing our candidate selection processes. Mm. 
Well, happy to help any way we can, I guess. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't be the example in, in everything. That's for <laughs> <No>. sure. <clears throat> In the, uh, in the final section of your book, uh, it affirms social pluriformity as a way to transcend the ideologies. What do you mean by that, social pluriformity, and how does it help? Yeah, yeah. I think the term I, there's more than one word. Societal pluriformity is the term I use, and I also use the, the term pluriformity of authorities. And I use that especially in my second book, uh, We Answer to Another Authority, Office, and the Image of God, which was published in, in 2014. Uh, by pluriformity, um, I don't think I invented that word, but but software spe spell checks don't recognize it, so I had to <laughs> had, to, had to input it into my into Word or um, or um, um, Open Office or whatever I happened to be using at the at the time. Um, it, it basically means the society is made up of a variety of formations of social formations. So. You know, if you look at an ordinary society in a, 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 a country such as Canada or the United States or virtually any Western country, but increasingly um, throughout the world, you have a variety of formations. So you have basic institutions such as marriage, family, uh, uh, the state and the and the institutional church. You have a variety of other uh, communities as well, such as the business enterprise or the labor union or the or the uh, um, uh, the, the museum board or the or a dance troupe or, or a whole variety of uh, financial institutions and the like that that um, that that you would be hard pressed to uh, to to name all of those formations. And so uh, you know, the, a university is different from a, from a family. And I would tell my students when I was teaching them that, that if anybody were to come into the classroom and see what's going on, they would know immediately, intuitively, they wouldn't have to engage in sophisticated theory to discern what's going on. Because it's mm -hmm. not a family, you know, I, I, um, I, I couldn't possibly have sired, uh, you know, maybe 50 <laughs> young people of about the same age, you know, or without the cooperation of a number of women about 20 years earlier. Um, I couldn't, uh, you know, it's, it's not a church, I'm not preaching, I'm not... Um, I'm not uh, um, reading scripture. It's, it's a classroom, and everybody would know that coming into the room. So we're not just an arbitrary collection of individuals that have um, that have decided that we're going to do something. But there's a classroom that uh, whose context has been set by the institution, and before I even came onto the onto the scene, and before the students came onto the scene as well. So societal pluriformity is simply recognizing that different social formations, that, that family is family, that marriage is marriage, that, that a labor union is a labor union. Mm. Mm. That is helpful. Yeah. And then later in the book, so we've already talked about the, the different ideologies mm. uh, that are per, potential uh, idolatrous relationships with, with thought. And then in the latter portion of the book, you talk about two different Christian approaches. One's the Catholic mm -hmm. Church, and then the other is the sphere of sovereignty. Can you just talk about those two different options, um, yeah. how, the, how either inter integrates with faith and politics, and then how that helps us? Right. I, th I think these two traditions, and they're, they're the Roman Catholic and the Reformed tradition in particular, are, um, are, uh, have been the most fruitful in terms of helping Christians to understand uh, the nature of society and our role within the larger society. So in the, Roman, in the Roman Catholic Church, and this is something that goes back centuries, back to Thomas Aquinas, but it was really crystallized in the papal encyclicals, the pastoral letters of Pope Leo XIII, Towards the uh, the latter um, the last quarter 
of the of the 19th century into the very early years of the of the 20th century and and uh, and the, the, there were there were two ideas that that came out of those encyclicals one was solidarity and the other one was subsidiarity solidarity simply means that 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 we have a stake in our in the lives of our fellow human beings and that we're not just um, automata we're not we're not just alone trying to find our way in uh, in a kind of state of nature that we would find in some of the like thomas hobbs or even john locke who had mm. a huge impact on the american founding but we we have a stake in each other's lives subsidiarity uh presupposes a kind of hierarchical society with god at the top uh with the with the, ch the institutional church underneath that with the state underneath, and then a variety of other so-called intermediary communities with individuals at the bottom. So it's a kind of a kind of ontological hierarchy, if you will, even though it's not a kind of um, it's not really a class system as such. But in that hierarchy, a subsidiarity means that the lower communities, the lower agents, uh, function insofar as they are able without undue interference from the top. But only if things go awry in one of those lower communities, then a higher institution such as the state or the church can step in and render subsidium or, or assistance or help to try to mm. set things aright. Now, the reform tradition has a different approach because the reform tradition is non-hierarchical. So in just this, the way that, that the Reformation under Luther and Cal Calvin uh, postulated that we uh, that individual Christians relate directly to God, uh, the, the, the priesthood of all believers, so the notion of, of society is non-hierarchical. So the state uh, presides over, uh, over a particular jurisdiction, but it's not ontologically higher than family or marriage or any of these other um, uh, communities or associations. Uh, you know, it cannot unduly interfere with, with them. The state has its own divine mandate to do public justice within the context of a particular uh, jurisdiction. The family has its own divine mandate that it has to do with the, the raising of children. Uh, marriage has a particular uh, divine mandate. So one could say the same thing of, of the school, of the business enterprise, and so forth. And so each of these gets its authority not from the state, and not from contracting individuals, but the authority for those institutions comes directly from God. Hmm. So, with the with the Catholic Church, you have the the idea of subsidiarity. Is there something like that within sphere sovereignty? If some uh, sphere is malfunctioning, would yes. that be like almost a sideways help, or how does that work? Yeah, I think it would be. It would be kind of a um, you know a, a lateral assistance from from uh, from one community to, to the other. So mm -hmm. the the fact that the state is obligated to do public justice means that if within the family there is child abuse going on, for mm -hmm. example, then the state has an obligation to step in and to uh, to set things right, possibly to remove that child from the, from the family and put the child in a foster home. But that does not mean that the family derives its authority from the state. Hmm. And I think that's that's very important for this notion of, of sovereignty in its own sphere, which, uh, which was articulated by Abraham Kuyper in the 19th and the very early 20th centuries. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's really helpful, yeah. Uh, so I, I, we, Scott and I both have been 
pondering uh, this podcast throughout a pandemic, obviously. And when reading the book, uh, it had me pondering how would a government informed by sphere sovereignty, mm-hmm. how would it operate and what, what would be the, the ideal way it would operate in a pandemic? Yeah, and that is that that is something that, that we're all forced to come, come to grips with. And I think maybe if there's ever a third edition of this book, I would I would it includes um, that that <laughs> issue in it perhaps because this came out in in 2019, and of course that was just for the pandemic and the lockdowns and, and so mm-hmm. forth. But but it is you true, gave everybody I, reading material. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. And and um, you know it it is true that during a time of emergency, the state takes on more powers than it would during uh during normal times so you know during um i'm thinking the 20th century was was a time of emergencies you know from from Mm -hmm. about 1914 right up until 1945 and maybe even longer with the cold war and so governments in the united states for example um you know there was a fairly i don't want to say a neat division between the states and, and washington uh, prior to 1914, but it, it, it is true that uh, with the entry into the Great War in 1917, that the United States government took on more powers than it, than it otherwise would have. That's when the, um, the, um, when the federal income tax was instituted, at first as an emergency measure, but then of course it's hung around for just over a century now. Uh, which wasn't the intent of of the um, of the Wilson administration at, at the time. The 1920s, um, you know, uh, it was kind of a wild time, the Jazz Age, and so forth. And then 1929, you get the Great Depression, and then Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal again. Uh, and then 1939, the Americans didn't get involved in the war until 1941, of course. But then emergency measures, you know, Manhattan, New York, all the lights had to go out. You know, that might violate people's personal freedoms to keep their lights on. But in a time of emergency, there, there were fears mm. that, that, that the Germans might try to attack. And there were, there were um, low-level battles in the St. Lawrence River, um, you know, here, here in Canada with, with U-boats on, underwater. And so there were real concerns about the possibility of a, of a landing in North America and on the West Coast by Japan in San Francisco and Los Angeles and so forth. You know, our, we're, we're in, uh, I think the current generation, that would include me because I'm a baby boomer. I was born 10 years after mm. the, war, the war ended, but we're not accustomed to living under uh, uh, in, uh, under a state of emergency, which in some sense is what, what we have been in for the last um, almost two years. Um, so, you know, people who are protesting the sorts of, of quarantines that, that have been imposed. Um, I, I, I don't have a lot of sympathy, at least initially, because, you know, if we're going to protect people from pandemic run amok, then we have mm-hmm. to do, we all have to pull together and to cooperate in the, in the best way that, that we can. In the same way that, um, you know, you have streetcars and uh, trains on, on the side, you have buy war bonds during the Second World War. Um, I'm a bit of a rail fan, so I see these old pictures and see these by war bonds, and people had to had to pull together, and we're in a in a time like that. But that's not to say that there are not dangers, because if a government takes on emergency powers, it might not be willing to relinquish them once the uh, the the emergency has ended. Now, when will this emergency end, and how will we know it has ended? Will it mm-hmm. be? I just I just got a. Um, a booster shot. So this is my first third COVID shot. 
uh, over over the last uh, not not quite a year. Um, am I going to have to get another one in six months? I don't know. There, there's certainly that possibility, but I think at some at some point, um, you know, governments are going to have to say, well, we'll have to get along with COVID as best we can. Maybe this Omicron variant seems to have become a uh, as, as far as I could tell, it, it seems to be a milder variant, in which case I find myself wondering, and, and you know, I don't want to be guilty of disseminating disinformation because I don't know, but I find myself wondering, well, maybe we should all try to get the Omicron variant so that we'll, we'll be immune to the, to, to, to the, the more deadly variants of, uh, of mm. COVID. Um, we're, we're probably going to have to live with this, and, and in, in which case governments may have to uh, pull back in the interest of restoring some some element of normalcy. Hmm. See, I think that's been one of the things that's been interesting for me is that, uh, uh, and even reading your book during this time, because I've had people, uh, you know, to say, well, the church shouldn't necessarily capitulate to what the state wants them to do with respect to masks or vaccines and that sort of thing. And it does strike me as a sphere sovereignty thing. It strikes me as a liberalism uh, yeah, you know, yeah. pl play also. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't have any difficulty with ma mask mandates. You know, so our our church was um, having uh, we we had to wear a mask. There are limited numbers that are that are allowed in, and we they had to register in advance. And that that makes me uncomfortable because if somebody shows up at the church first time and they want to know Jesus Christ, are we going to turn mm. them away? Um, I would hope not. <laughs> Mm. I would hope not. So in, in that respect, you know, the, we want to obey the laws, but at the same time, um, there are difficulties with, with simply going along in a, in a, in a rigid way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, there's you, been a whole couple of years of difficulties there. You're right. I know. Yes. It yeah. is, yes. yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I hear the des description of the, the sphere of government as the one that would have emergency yeah. powers for for war or for pandemics or things like that that's right. obviously yeah. a very practical idea uh, where yeah. would where would that be couched in scripture would that be a romans 13 thing holding the sword or would that would you go somewhere else to well that? yeah i mean it's it's um you know i think we have to be be very careful because uh, you know we we um you know, I, th I think I think we can see that government bears the power of the sword. Even if Paul and Peter had never thought to mention it, we would still mm. have governments. You know, mm, so 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 there there has to be a certain uh, empirical uh, analysis of what real life is like and what kinds of institutions exist in real life. You know, even if the family had never been mentioned in in, in the scriptures, and of course there are all countless examples, especially of dysfunctional families in the scriptures, you know, mm. in the Old Testament, Jacob and Joseph and his brothers and so on. I can't think of a more dysfunctional family in that respect, but even if it hadn't been mentioned, we still form families, you know, but, but the scriptures help us, um, as Psalm 119 verse 105 puts it, your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. So, you know, we're, we're walking. We don't wait to read scripture before we start walking. We're, we're already in progress. We're already walking, but we shine the scriptures on our path to, to make it clear for us. And that's what, mm -hmm. that's what I think Paul in Romans 13 and also First um, Peter uh, help us to see in terms of the role of government. The government is there 
to to do justice, to do, to do public justice is the way that I and other people mm. would, 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 would express it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. That's helpful. One of the things that we're we're hoping to do with uh, our podcast here is just to really help the church navigate the political environment. And I was really um, interested that you had an ecclesiological postscript. (laughs) In other words, it appears to be your concern, too, that the church gets squared away on their relationship with the state. And so could you speak a little bit to the uh, kind of what you would say to the church about all these things? Yeah, let me say first off that that, that, that postscript was not in the first edition. But um, I, I discovered that, that my book, the first edition, was being used in theological seminaries. Uh, you know, my, my audience was largely the larger Christian community insofar as we are, are um, living out our salvation in God's world. So I wasn't focusing so much on the church as an institution. And, and the, the distinction between the church as the larger body of Christ and the church as an institution is one that Abraham Kuyper makes in, in, in his writings. And that's something that I, that I decided, well, I needed to address that because if it's being used in theological seminaries, then it needs to, um, it needs to address where prospective pastors are, where uh, maybe uh, denominational synodical assemblies are, you know, for uh, ministers preaching from the pulpit, what, what assemblies are, are, are trying to decide. And so that, that's why I wrote uh, a pen to that particular um, uh, ecclesiological postscript. So the institutional church, I think that there are, are ways in which churches can go wrong when, as, as an institution when they try to touch on politics. And there are multiple ways in which they can do that. So uh, many of the, the Protestant denominations in both of our countries will make pronouncements on, for example, a $15 minimum wage or maybe a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine uh, um, issue. Uh, you know, I mean, both of those may be wise uh, policy alternatives, but I don't think that the church, as an institution, uh, should be engaging in that kind of in that that kind of um, uh, pronouncement, because I think that goes beyond what the church, as an institution, ought to be doing. Now, in, in, in even if all the members of Canada's Parliament were had theological degrees, that still doesn't give them the institutional competence to pronounce on doctrine. Mm-hmm. And so that's the, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's the analogy that I'm, that I'm using here. But I think there are ways in which the church can speak to, um, uh, to political matters. And, and, and I give three examples in, in, in my book. One of these is the Barman Declaration of 1934. And uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, Americans probably need to know more about that declaration. 1934, this was Germany, the year after Hitler had come to power under with his uh, National Socialist German Workers' Party, a very long name that was trying to appeal to as many um, sectors of the German population as, as possible. Uh, you know, there were there were many people that were sympathetic to Hitler, that of course couldn't foresee where um, where Hitler would would take, um, you know, t- take uh, Germany in, in terms of making war on virtually everybody and, and trying to obliterate the Jews and, and so forth. And but you know, so there were moderate Nazis. That, that may sound very strange to us nowadays, but in 1934 there were Christians in Germany 
Uh, and, and they were very disturbed by what they were seeing from the National Socialists. And so um, um, there was a, 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 a group called the Confessing Church within the larger Evangelische Kirche. They were they're led by people such as Karl Barth, the, the, the famous, probably the greatest Protestant theologian of the, of the 20th century. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I think is probably better known now than he was when I was growing up, just because so many of his, his books have been read and, 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 and published. Uh, you know, there were other members of this, this confessing church that, uh, that decided that something needed to be said uh, to address the situation of, of Christians in Germany. It's interesting because the Barman Declaration, which in its first draft was, was put together by Barth, and it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a masterpiece, I think, of a confessional document that addresses not Berlin, not the government in Germany, but the Christians who were living under that government mm. and who were being deluded by what was going on. So, you know, it, it had a very indirect address to the government, but it was really addressing German Christians who were allowing themselves to become misled by, well, the misinformation that was being disseminated by the National mm. Socialist regime. Uh, fast forward a few years to 1937, and the Pope, Pius XI, uh, 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 wrote, uh, published a, a papal encyclical, a pastoral letter that wasn't published in, in Latin. Almost all papal, papal encyclicals are published initially in Latin, and then they're translated into other languages. This one was written in German, and it was addressed to Catholics in Germany. So again, like the Barman Declaration of Protestants, this was addressing Catholics and telling them that, that no, the Old Testament and the Jewish roots of Christianity are parts and an integral part of the gospel. So efforts on the part of the Deutsche Christen, the German Christians, to try to de-Judaize the, the, the Christian mm -hmm. faith are illegitimate. And this is what the Pope was telling Catholics, and it was read from all the pulpits in Germany in 1937, just two years before the, before the war broke out. Fast forward again to 1986, South Africa, the Dutch Reformed Mission Church, which was a, a, a non-white denomination in South Africa, uh, uh, published something called the, um, uh, the Belar Confession. And again, it didn't counsel people to disobey the apartheid government in, uh, in Pretoria, but it did uh, talk about, uh, you know, address the idolatry in terms of this racial understanding of, of humanity that was being disseminated by the apartheid regime. And again, it didn't, it didn't address the regime directly. It addressed the Christians, especially mm. the white Christians who were, who were being deluded by the, uh, by the apartheid, the nationalist ideology, which had led to the apartheid um, system after 1948. So you're, so if you were to say, here's the word of the church, you would say the church needs to get clear on what they should believe and what they shouldn't believe, rather yeah. than just speaking to policies that yeah. may or may not be a good application of their uh, beliefs. That's, that's right. So, 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 you know, specific policy alternatives, those do not belong to the church as an, as an institution. And, and as well from the pulpit, you know, a, a minister shouldn't be saying, you all need to vote for so and so, or you all need to to write your congressman to uh, to uh, to urge them to pass a fifteen dollar per hour minimum minimum wage. You know that goes beyond uh, what a what a minister should be doing, but he should be 
reading those passages that speak to justice and and talking you know the in the old testament uh, in the the first five books of the old testament in isaiah in the psalms you know in micah in amos in the, in the book of james and so forth about about the the duty of christians and of government towards the poor and that is something that should be part of sermons yes hmm. well that is helpful because when i grew up and maybe it's the same way for you the the way the church spoke about politics was always policy related yeah, right right and trying to get some sort of a moral right. majority there to leverage the policy uh, that's right yes which yeah, is very different yeah. than what you're suggesting right i mean that's, that's right yeah. okay see and it's the same way if the church is for the family you know the, the church will say you know you need to d discipline your children there could be a sermon devoted to that you need to discipline discipline your children but how that's to be done that needs to be left up to the parents mm. you know so mm. so a pastor is not going to say okay little johnny has has disobeyed you you need to go in and spank him or you need to send him to his room or something like that that goes beyond what what a minister ought to be doing mm. that, that actually was a helpful little uh, excursus there thank you sure uh, yes uh, well, really, what you're describing is is the church jumping into other spheres in which it yes. doesn't belong. That's right. Yeah, and and you know, it's, there there's there aren't the um, uh, like there aren't ironclad boundaries or watertight boundaries between the spheres. So you know, as an individual, you know, I'm I'm a I'm an individual person, yes, but I'm also a member of Global Scholars. I'm I'm also a, a member of a particular birth family. I'm a member of the of of our immediate family. I'm a, I'm a member of, of some professional associations and so forth. I'm a citizen of Canada, um, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and 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 they don't exhaust who we are as individuals. But you know, insofar as as the various communities of which I I, I am a part, insofar as they intersect with each other, then they, then there's going to be. Um, you know, there, there, there's going to be a relationship between them. So, for example, here in Canada, we have crown corporations that are owned lock, stock, and barrel by by the crown. You know, in right of Canada. So we have um, uh, Canada Post. Uh, you know, the the equivalent of the United States Postal Service, which would be the equivalent of a crown corporation. You know, you, you don't use those terms obviously in, in the United States for obvious reasons, but it is a public corporation. That's basically owned by the by the federal government. Now that's not a variety of sphere. That's not a violation of sphere sovereignty in, in any in any event. But you know, if the government tries to control and own every possible economic formation, as was the case in the Soviet Union, the People's Republic of China, then we know that something is amiss. Hmm. Yeah. No, this has been. Yeah, this has been really helpful. I appreciate I appreciate being able to talk to you about it because it's the kind of thing we we have uh, we actually started talking about this podcast a year ago, maybe wow. even today, when wow. we were trying to respond to things going on January sixth. Wow. And we said we've right. we've got to do something. We can't sit on our hands any longer. No. And so we've we've been trying to help the church navigate the political environment and. Sure. We have found your book to be very helpful in that and, and talking with you as well. Thank you. Oh, you're, you're very welcome. And thank you. Is there anything else that uh, you would like to add or would think that uh, would be good for uh, the church or listeners to, to think about as far as their interaction with politics? Yeah, well, I, I guess I would say, you know, for all Christians should remain grounded in Scripture. 
Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, you know, the, I, I have for the last, oh, ever since I was a young man, I've had this practice of, of twice daily prayer. And then I pray with our family at, at meals and, and so forth. And, and I think um, the, this twice daily prayer is a way to go through the Psalms every month, which I do as prescribed in the Book of Common Prayer. Um, also um, uh, through the Old Testament and evening prayer, then the New Testament chapter by chapter in, in morning prayer and so forth. And I think it's a way of, of keeping grounded in, in the scriptures. And, you know, if, if, if for a Christian uh, not to have read through the entire scripture, I think that's a, that's, that's not a good thing. I think we should immerse ourselves in scripture. You know, there may be parts of scripture like the building of the temple and the tabernacle that you might breeze through a little bit more quickly than other, other parts of it. And I think that's okay. But, uh, but, but we should know the story of uh, the, the, um, the redemptive narrative that, that we find in scripture, because I think if, if we know that, then when we recognize um, the, um, uh, you know, a faux redemptive narrative somewhere out there, such as one being disseminated by, 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 by the ideologies, then we'll recognize it for what it is. We'll be able to see that. I think it's easiest to see with something like Marxism, but I think you can also see it in the other ideologies as well. Hmm. Thank you. I appreciate anybody recommending that the church get grounded in scripture. That's fantastic. And I also appreciate a scholar who's willing to say there are parts that you kind of speed through. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. That's right. <laughs> I, I mean, actually did that. And I'm happy to have uh, somebody who's a scholar and academic admit that. That's yeah. <laughs> so thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. Hmm. Well, thank you again, Dr. Koizis. I'll just lead us out. I want to thank everyone for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and rate us. If you find what we're doing helpful, a review would go a long way to getting this to other people. And share it with a friend. If you have questions, send them to podcast at newlifeandw.com. And we look forward to the next conversation.